Prestige heads. It is I, producer Jake, in for Danny Bessner, here with my friend and colleague Derek Davison. And we are, I don't know, we're chopped liver here. We've got Danny going big time in Hollywood uh, today. He's selling out. So I'm, I'm I know he's, he's doing this for love of the game. I don't know what he's what he's doing. You know, he came in with a, a polka dot satchel over his shoulder and said he was ready to head to Tinseltown. This kid from Rockaway. There you go. Look at him now. So everybody, uh, keep your eyes peeled on, on, sorry, not HBO Max, on just Max, because uh, Danny will be appearing on Real Time with one Bill Maher this evening when you're listening to this. So, is that, is, I mean, that's still on the regular channel too, right? Do people still watch regular TV like I, HBO? I don't know how TV okay. works in I don't either the anymore. year 2023. Yeah. I saw on the promotional poster it said Max or okay. HBO Max. So maybe I, thought it, I think he's also if you're like an old person who still watches cable like me. Yeah. I think it's also on HBO the channel at at 10 Eastern on on Friday. Yeah, so check that out. We're we're actually extremely proud of him and excited to see see what happens. But that is neither here nor there. Derek and I are here to get down to business with the news. So let's get started. Derek, what is going on in Sudan? Uh, so what we have in Sudan is a total breakdown of pretty much everything. Uh, the military junta is now fighting among itself or within itself. Uh, on Saturday, the Sudanese military and the Rapid Support Forces, which is a paramilitary group that emerged in the Darfur conflict, uh, based on the uh, infamous Janjaweed militia that committed many of the worst atrocities uh, in Darfur, uh, and was later was was kind of brought into the state security apparatus by uh, then President Omar al Bashir. Uh, those guys are fighting each other now. the The junta, the way the junta had been constructed, the leader uh, was the military commander in chief uh, Abdel Fattah al Burhan. The deputy head of the hunter deputy uh, head of the committee that oversaw the hunter was the rsf commander mohammed hamdan dagalo uh they have increasingly not been getting along for months now uh as sudan has been circling around but never quite getting to a political transition uh a lot of this seemed like kind of jockeying for position trying to maybe curry some favor with the civilian groups that uh, have been opposing the junta uh, in in advance of a transition to a more civilian type government, uh, maybe just kind of positioning themselves for political careers after the junta ends. Uh, but most recently, they've been at odds over a proposal to bring the rapid support forces under the military chain of command. Uh, Dagalo, for obvious reasons, wants to wanted to leave it independent. Uh, he was resisting that. That had been holding up, in fact, uh, by some accounts, the transition itself. Um, anyway, they've been, you know, kind of sniping at each other publicly. It didn't seem like it was going to turn hostile until uh, a few days ago, uh, maybe about a week ago at this point. Uh, 
the RSF started deploying fighters uh, conspicuously enough into a number of Sudanese cities. Uh, this drew a warning from the military that potentially this was going to cause fighting. And sure enough, on Saturday, uh, it sounds like the Rapid Support Forces started this first. Uh, they attacked a number of military positions in Khartoum and other parts of Sudan. Uh, and that has kicked off what is now, I, I guess we're in our uh, sixth day of fighting on Thursday. Uh, the Mostly it's been concentrated after an initial kind of flurry of activity around the country. It's been concentrated primarily in Khartoum and its sister cities at the uh, confluence of the White and Blue Niles, uh, uh, Omdurman and Bahri. Um, and there's been some reports of fighting in Darfur and scattered reports still of fighting at, at facilities in other parts of the country, but I think the heaviest fighting has definitely been in the, the center. The two sides agreed on Tuesday to a 24-hour ceasefire that was supposed to allow for humanitarian relief to come in, for people to evacuate, civilians to evacuate the war zone, for hospitals to get, which have been battered in the cities, in these cities, uh, and are running out of supplies anyway to kind of get resupplied and, and do some repairs. Uh, that didn't take. Uh, they then scheduled another ceasefire for 6 p.m. on Wednesday. Uh, as far as I know, that didn't take initially, but then there was a noticeable, apparently, slowdown in fighting that has since picked back up. So you didn't get it. They didn't get a 24 hour ceasefire. Maybe they got a, a, a few hours of slightly calmer uh, situation out of it. But uh, otherwise, things are, things appear to be quite dire. Uh, it's been hard to get any kind of, stable casualty count. The last one I saw was from the World Health Organization that said 330 people have been killed, uh, about 3,200 people wounded. I do not know if that's an overall casualty count or just the civilian casualty count. Uh, as I said, hospitals in the capital and uh, in Omdurman and Bahri are struggling to stay open. Many of them have closed because of damage. Uh, many more are closing uh, or have closed because they've been cut off from fuel and other basic necessities. Uh, so this is a, a situation that really calls for some kind of a pause in fighting, uh, at the very least, to allow people to get to get out of where the main fighting is happening. There does not seem to be any impetus uh, toward peace talks, both Burhan and Dagalo on, on Thursday, uh, to various media outlets said they have no interest in negotiating. There can't be any negotiation. Uh, so they don't seem inclined to talk. They do, as I say, they have twice now uh, at least approached the idea of an extended ceasefire, but uh, in neither cases it seemed to have fully taken hold. So uh, still a lot uncertain here, but a uh, very dire situation, especially for people in the main central Sudanese cities and uh, there does not seem like there's going to be any respite uh, in the near future. Now, Derek, I, um, I might be wrong here, but was Burhan the one that came into power after the uh, uprising and the protests a few years ago, 2018, 2019? I mean, they both did. What happened after the protests in 19, 2019 that ousted uh, Omar al-Bashir was a hybrid civilian military transitional government took over. It was mostly, that was mostly a military coup. I mean, it was it was one of these things where there was a lot of civilian opposition to Bashir. There were protests, but it wasn't until the military said, okay, enough is enough, that, that Bashir was 
ousted. Uh, nevertheless, there was a civilian component to that government, the, the prime minister, the cabinet, etc. cetera. Uh, and there was a transitional council that was part military, part civilian. They were both on that council. Um, Burhan was the, the chair of the council. Uh, Degalo, I don't know if he was the, the deputy chair of the council at that point, but uh, he was certainly a prominent figure. The RSF is, is an extremely potent organization. Um, so they've been, I mean, they've been in charge of this basically the entire time. Now in October of 2021, uh, they finally decided to do away with the civilian component uh, of the transitional government in another coup. And it's been basically military rule ever since there've been fits and starts about forming another civilian cabinet. They've been, they've negotiated off and on with opposition groups, but that hasn't really gone anywhere. And so, yes, they, since then, they've been the two, pretty much the only two people uh, with any degree of control. And they've cultivated their own sets of alliances. Degalo's pretty close with like Russia and Wagner. He's got relationships with the UAE. Uh, Burhan is very close to, to Egypt, which is been a long time supporter of the Sudanese military. Uh, they both seem to have some independent relationships with Saudi Arabia. Uh, there is a regional component here in terms of who has leverage to maybe you know convince these guys to to talk or who might have interest in making sure that one or the other emerges victorious. Uh, but I, I don't think there's been enough time to uh, for that to really play out. And and again. Um, you know, it's, it's an intense conflict, but it's been fairly localized over the last few days. And it, it still is, I would say, a, a very much a clash between these two particular personalities rather than, uh, a full blown civil war, although it could certainly get to that point. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, we will keep you all um, updated on what's going on there, be it in a hopefully a special, but if not, then here in our news roundups. So moving on to Yemen, where there was a substantial prisoner exchange. Derek, what what were the details with that? Yes, uh, after a, a bit of a hiccup, uh, this the Yemeni prisoner swap was supposed to happen on Thursday of last week. It started on Friday continued through Sunday successfully by all accounts. Somewhere around, I think, 870 prisoners in total were released uh, on either side, many more from the from Saudi Arabia than from the, the Houthi rebels. Uh, the Saudis then on Monday, uh, the day after this three-day extravaganza uh, ended, released another... Uh, tranche of prisoners, I think a hundred, little over a hundred additional prisoners, which they characterized as a more or less goodwill gesture uh, to help move along peace talks. So uh, there are, there is another round of negotiations that is supposed to happen at some point. I don't know that they've set a date, but there's been a lot of talk about doing it after the Eid holiday, which uh, actually, I, I believe, begins uh, today as we're recording this on the 20th or maybe tomorrow. Uh, so there's been a lot of talk about doing it then uh, at some point, but I, I haven't seen any definite plans uh, for it. I would expect that that the Saudis will just kind of show up in Sana'a as they did last time uh, for the last round of peace talks. Ideally, uh, well, not even ideally. I think if they don't emerge from this next round of peace talks with a ceasefire 
uh, a formal ceasefire, not the informal one that seems to be in place right now, but an actual committed to paper ceasefire, then uh, that will be viewed as a major setback. Uh, they're, they're really at the point where that's the only path forward, I think. So how optimistic are we feeling about this this process? It seems to be moving along, and this seems to be some show of goodwill, but I I don't know whether to take this with a grain of salt or what. Yeah, it's. I mean, I, I, I think it's fair to be optimistic, at least more optimistic than any other time, maybe, you know, since this war started, uh, that they might be actually heading toward an end. But uh, they really have to get that ceasefire and... and the, the thing about these negotiations, it's great. You know, they had the last round. They did the prisoner swap. These are all good confidence-building measures. But uh, you have to start to show some some tangible progress toward ending the conflict at some point. And, uh, you know, when once you get into the room and everybody's got their little grievances or their little issues that they want to bring up, there's, there's always a, a potential for things to break down over some uh, relatively picking thing. Uh, so... You know, I, I think it's things are trending in the right direction, but, uh, you know, I wouldn't get too enthusiastic until uh, some actual documents start to emerge, some actual agreements on ending the fighting, on ending the blockade, on, you know, go down the line of all the things that, that were involved in this war. So we'll hold the celebrations till something's on paper. But uh, sticking with Saudi and diplomacy in the Gulf and the Middle East in general, there's been a lot of activity with Syria, Iran, um, Hamas. So much activity. <laughs> it is the era of good feelings in the Middle East, I think. It's with a couple of, of uh, conspicuous exceptions. But uh, yeah, the, the, the process of rehabilitating... The Syrian government, Bashar al-Assad's government, bringing it back into the kind of regular diplomatic fold of the region is uh, still well underway. There was a meeting on Friday of minister, foreign ministers from the GCC plus three, that's the GCC plus Jordan, Iraq, uh, and um, uh, Egypt. And they were primarily discussing whether or not to invite Bashar al-Assad to the Arab League summit in Riyadh next month. They did not come to an agreement to do that um there's still some resistance primarily i think from qatar uh to fully normalizing relations with with assad uh there was a proposal from the jordanians to try to get assad to agree to certain conditions around uh ending the drug traffic the, the captagon trade out of syria toward uh, you know political reconciliation kind of ending the uh some of the the stalemated civil war that that's still kind of uh you know ongoing in syria so uh barring that he may not actually wind up getting this this invite to the arab league summit that said bilaterally things are continuing to to move in the direction of normalizing relations uh faisal bin farhan uh the saudi foreign minister visited assad on tuesday he was the first saudi foreign minister to visit Damascus since the start of the Syrian civil war. Um, that was, that's a, he's easily the, the highest profile diplomatic figure in the region to visit Assad, uh, in this, uh, latest flurry of events. So, uh, that, that's a fairly major development. Uh, Assad sent his foreign minister Faisal Mekdad to Algeria over the weekend, then to Tunisia on Monday. Uh, they agreed to in Tunisia, 
uh, agreed to kind of advance diplomatic ties there uh, to reopen embassies, I believe was the, the agreement that they had. So a lot of stuff happening with respect to Assad. Now there's other st- stuff happening here too on a related note, I guess, because it's the Iranian Saudi diplomatic thaw that has made a lot of this stuff possible, including Yemen and the, uh, a lot of the, the kind of Saudi Assad interactions. Uh, the Iranians said on Monday that they have invited King Salman of Saudi Arabia to come to Iran for a state visit. Uh, I, to my knowledge, the Saudis have not responded to this, but I think the invitation itself is fairly noteworthy. Uh, Salman, given his age and health, probably isn't doing much traveling these days, but who knows? No Saudi king has visited Iran since the 1979 revolution. So if he somehow did make that trip, it would be uh, it would be a huge event. Uh, Ebrahim Raisi, the president of Iran, has already been invited to go to Saudi Arabia. He's planning to do that at some point. The, the details haven't been ironed out. Uh, elsewhere, also involving the Saudis, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the, the head of the pa- uh, Palestinian Authority, visited Saudi Arabia earlier in the week. Uh, also, representatives of Hamas visited Saudi Arabia. Uh, they arrived, I think, on Sunday uh, in the kingdom. Hamas and the Saudis haven't really had relations for at least since Hamas took over the Gaza Strip in, in 2007. Uh, Hamas is firmly in Iran's orbit in terms of regional alliances. But again, with the Saudis and the Iranians getting along, uh, there is room for Hamas to kind of squeeze in here and try to improve its relations with the Saudis. Uh, all of this, as you might expect, is not uh, does not sit terribly well with the Israeli government, which has been hoping to normalize its relations with the Saudis for quite some time now, only to see the Saudis. In large part, I think, or, or maybe not large, but to some degree because of the hostility that this Israeli government has been showing toward the Palestinians, uh, the Saudis are kind of moving in the opposite direction. They're moving toward Iran. They're moving toward Hamas. They're uh, you know, listening to Mahmoud Abbas when he comes to talk. So uh, a lot of things that are not uh, going according to, to plan, I think, from the, uh, from the Israeli perspective. The last thing I would mention, which doesn't, directly involve the Saudis, but is still in line with this era of good feelings uh, thing that's happening, is the UAE and Qatar uh, agreed to reopen their mutual embassies uh, this week. They are going to reinstall ambassadors to, to the, each other's con- countries and uh, the whole nine yards. The UAE was, of course, one of the quartet of countries that included the Saudis, also included Bahrain and Egypt, that broke off ties with Qatar back in 2017. Uh, they've formally put an end to that TIFF in early 2021, but it's taken a, a couple of years plus for the these relationships to kind of really uh, get back to anything approaching the pre-boycott normal. Uh, the, the president of the UAE, Mohammed bin Zayed al-Nahyan, did visit Qatar in December, which was a major signal that uh, things were on the right track, but this will be basically, uh, you know, fully restoring relations for the first time since uh, since that 2017 incident. Uh, so another another happy fun time, I guess, for the the Middle East. Everybody's getting along these days for, uh, for yeah, some a veritable summer of love Almost. is upon us. Almost. <laughs> I don't know what it makes me 
like what feels more surreal, the normalization with um, al-Assad or um, the fact that we might have a Saudi king flying to Iran. Both seem are pretty, um, if you ask me 10 the years Saudi ago. King, I mean, the Saudi king flying to Iran would be unprecedented. Yeah. I, I, I mean, Assad and the Saudis have had relationships. Have had yeah, relationships that in seems the past. more like a whoopsie so, from Saudi, the Assad thing. That's a little hiccup. But yeah. for if if Salman try, and, and again, I really don't think this is going to happen. Not necessarily because it's Iran, but because Salman is quite old and and pretty, pretty infirm by all accounts. So uh, I, I question whether he would be able even to make the trip. But if he did, it would be, uh, you know, really, uh, really something a milestone. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll keep uh, our eyes peeled there. Um, on to everyone's favorite news topic, climate change. And there is actually not funny at all. Uh, there's a horrific heat wave happening in Thailand. Uh, Derek, what's going on there? Uh, yeah, the Washington Post covered this earlier this week. But um, just to, to so people have some idea, uh, Thailand last Friday uh, hit 113 degrees Fahrenheit or 45 degrees Celsius. Uh, it topped it uh, actually in one town called Tak. Uh, they the thermometer uh, apparently hit 114 degrees Fahrenheit or 45.4 degrees Celsius. Uh, that's the first time Thailand. That's, that's a new high, basically temperature in in Thai history. Uh, now this is the hottest, the hot season in Thailand, April and May, uh, but it's never quite gotten this hot. Uh, they've had all sorts of records in other parts of thailand uh other cities other towns temperatures at 110 112 degrees i'm in i'm in fahrenheit because i'm a stupid american apologies for those of you who are on the better celsius system um but uh you know just all over the place it's just uh very high temperatures there have been uh reports of record high temperatures for this time of year anyway in many other countries across Asia, Bangladesh, China, India, Myanmar, uh, Nepal, uh, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, just all over the place. Uh, and, you know, we're in a, a time of obviously, you know, climate change, as you said, it's an El Nino year. So uh, I would expect this to be uh, uh, something that defines 2023. There's going to be some roiling hot temperatures all over the place oh boy looking forward to it um yeah india by the way i should say congratulations the united nations population fund uh issued its new state of the world population report which estimates that india should be surpassing china in population to become the most populous country on earth sometime this month wow Uh, this is a bit difficult to assess because india hasn't had a census since 2011 Hmm. Uh, but that's their estimate. So um, I guess congratulations. I, I don't know. Mazel tov, India. That's, yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so going back to Ukraine, what is happening with their grain shipments? Yeah, this has been a, a big story this week. Um, more so, I think, than anything happening on the battlefield where the fighting, again, seems kind of stalemated around Bakhmut uh, with the Ukrainians still holding on to some sliver of that city. The big issue has been the importation of Ukrainian grain into Europe, where it is apparently flooding the market and crashing prices, which is causing 
farmers in other parts of Europe to complain, which is causing political headaches for the governments uh, in those countries. And so governments are starting to impose bans on the importation of Ukrainian grain. Poland and Hungary over the weekend announced bans on importing Ukrainian grain. Slovakia announced a ban on Monday. Bulgaria, I believe, has now joined them uh, in banning the import of Ukrainian grain. Uh, for, a, for a brief time, for a couple of days, I think, Poland not only was banning imports of Ukrainian grain, it wasn't even allowing the transit of Ukrainian grain through Poland on the, you know, the chance that some of it would fall off the proverbial truck, I guess, and, and find its way to market. Uh, they've since relaxed that they're allowing transit, but they're still not allowing imports. Uh, so this is this has become a, a big deal. Uh, the European Union announced a hundred million euro uh, payout outlay to help support farmers, uh, but the bans are now expanding to other goods. I believe Poland has also introduced bans on Ukrainian honey, Ukrainian beef. Uh, so uh, a potential, potentially major political headache here for uh, some of these countries. And the EU is going to have to figure out what it wants to do because obviously uh, Brussels is not going to want to tell the Ukrainians to stop exporting their products at this particular moment in time. Uh, but they are also not going to want to deal with these EU member states who are uh, complaining and demanding uh, some recompense for their farmers uh, from Brussels. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Now, there is a potential solution to this, which is to ship more Ukrainian grain through the Black Sea to other parts of the world, like the Horn of Africa, that are desperately short on food. Uh, the Black Sea Grain Initiative was held up earlier this week because uh, supposedly the Russians had stopped allowing inspections uh, of ships heading out of the Black Sea. This is part of the initiative you're supposed to in order to check and make sure that nobody's transiting any uh, illicit cargo, weapons, etc. It's unclear. They, they, The Russians then, on, I believe, Monday or Tuesday, lifted that ban. I don't know why they imposed it in the first place. They talked about some procedural issues on Ukraine's part. They have accused the Ukrainians of, of shaking down ship captains for bribes uh, under the initiative. Uh, I haven't seen them make any, uh, make public any evidence of that. And I haven't seen any comment from the Ukrainians. So maybe that, uh, these things are related. It wouldn't be surprising. The other issue, uh, I, I guess from the sort of grain initiative aspect is the, the initiative going to be extended. Is its mandate going to be extended next month when it expires? Uh, the Russians have been, uh, seem like they're not inclined to do that. They've, they've been complaining all the way through ever since this thing was initially introduced last year, uh, that they're not getting benefits from it. They're not getting the, the protection for their own food exports that they were promised. Uh, they're not getting protection from Western sanctions, for example. Uh, so they don't seem inclined. The last time it came up for renewal, they only renewed it for a very short period of time, and, and it's up again next month. And I, I would say 50-50 at best, uh, whether it's going to be renewed again, in which case you're going to have even more pressure uh, from the Ukrainians to ship things overland into Europe, uh, and you're going to have these par these places uh, again, like the Horn of Africa or like West Africa or uh, other parts of the world that that have Yemen uh, that have relied on either 
commercial food shipments coming from the Black Sea or on humanitarian relief from agencies that buy their grain from uh, Ukraine or Russia, uh, they're going to be uh, in even worse uh, situations than they are now. Yeah, this. The, I mean, the whole issue of um, Ukrainian grain, I remember, came up like the first day of the war, talking to friends from the Middle East who talked about that's where they're, you know, in the Levant, they sort where they primarily source their grain from. So no, it's know. it's yeah, I, I, it's been a, a consistent problem. The 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 Black Sea Initiative was supposed to fix this, but you know, clearly they haven't been able to figure that out. Pro, pro, primarily, I would say because the U.S. and uh, European countries haven't been willing to make the kind of changes to their sanctions regime that would be necessary to to allow the Russians to get what they want out of the deal. Shocker there. Yeah. Well, in a rare optimistic end to the news, we've got some updates on peace talks in Colombia. Yes. So this is something we've talked about on and off uh, when there have been developments. Uh, Gustavo Petro's initiative to kind of end Colombia's many, many armed conflicts through negotiations uh, got a boost this week uh, when one of the two major groups of dissident members, former members of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia or FARC, uh, announced that it will enter peace talks or it's ready to enter peace talks with the Colombian government. Uh, they set May 16th as a date. I haven't seen the Colombian government's response to that if there has been one. Uh, but there are a lot of, there are a number of smaller ex-FARC factions around, but the two main ones are, uh, the Estado Mayor Central, uh, and, uh, the Segunda Marquetalia. The, the Estado Mayor Central is the one that announced this week. That's made up of primarily former FARC members who just rejected outright uh, the group's 2016 peace deal with the Colombian government. Uh, the, the other group, the Segunda Marcatalia, consists mostly of FARC fighters who accepted the deal at the time, but then uh, withdrew from it, citing the uh, then-Colombian government's basically uh, refusal to implement its terms or to honor its terms. Uh, so, you know, along with the, the National Liberation Army, the ELN, uh, the the Gulf Clan or Clan del Golfo, uh, the, these are some of the the largest uh, and most powerful of Colombia's various armed groups. So, getting any of them uh, into a peace process now, the EMC has been under a ceasefire with the government since January, so they haven't been engaging in in any uh, armed activities. But uh, you know, ceasefires are temporary, and peace talks, uh, in theory, could last forever. So. Uh, this is a, a positive development for Petro. Uh, he continues to, I think, irritate people in the U.S. because he doesn't want to uh, drop uh, herbicides on coca farms. And, and uh, you, you know, he's not treating the drug war as a military conflict. He's treating it as one that uh, uh, needs to be handled through law enforcement and negotiation. And uh, my hope is that he will be successful. So uh, we'll see. Well, thank you for your expertise and time, as always. And thank you, listeners, for, for listening. Uh, as always, like, subscribe, review the pod. Consider becoming a paid subscriber at our Substack, where you get a bunch of bonus episodes and content every week. And we will catch you all next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.